All right, I want to welcome all of my Mount Pleasant and Impact family, uh, along with all of you who may be joining us as guests today. Uh, we are now in the part of our service where we get to open up our Bibles and spend some time learning from God's Word. This is the second week of a new series called Blind Spots, and the kind of blind spots we're talking about are the different kinds of faults or flaws or weaknesses that creep into our daily lives and threaten and sometimes even destroy our spiritual lives. The problem is we don't see them, and since we don't see them, we can't take steps to correct them. And Listen, friends, this is a problem for all of us, at least on some level. And if you don't think it's a problem for you, then honestly, you probably just identified one of your blind spots. Last week, we kicked this off by talking about fear and anxiety, and we're going to continue this week by talking about something that is a little bit unusual, but I want you to bear with me. We're going to talk about idolatry. And I'm going to begin with a question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word idolatry? I'm going to pause there because I know many of you are watching at home with your children, and uh, I want to give you a little bit of a teaching time. And so uh, I want you, mom and dad, to take a minute and ask your kids that question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word idolatry? You might even need to uh, come up with a definition of idolatry on your own. And so I'm going to pause and let you do that here, uh, and uh, we'll just give you some music, background music to do that with. I know that wasn't very long, uh, but uh, I really can't afford to give you a whole lot of time. It might be something that you have to pick up a little bit later. Let me try to identify or define idolatry with an illustration. Let's just imagine that somehow I could transport myself back in time 25 years. And I'm sitting in my living room. I'm, I'm living in uh, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I'm the pastor of the church at Northside Christian Church, or I'm the pastor of Northside Christian Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I'm sitting in my living room with my wife, Sandy, and with our two kids, Andrew's 10 and Trisha's 6, although she's almost 7 because her birthday is just three days away. And let's say that I've got my Bible open to Daniel chapter 3, and I'm reading the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I'm sure most of you who are watching are familiar with their story. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, three young men who were taken as captives from the land of Judah to the land of Babylon. When the Babylonians uh, conquered the land of Judah and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they were in what eventually became three deportations. They were in the first of those three deportations. And their story is really highlighted in Daniel chapter 3, when one day King Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to build uh, an idol. He's going to build an image of gold that's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He's going to set it up on what's called the Plain of Dura. And when it comes time for the dedication ceremony, uh, he makes a decree that when the music plays, everyone has to bow down and worship the idol. And anyone who doesn't bow down and worship the idol is going to be punished by being thrown into a blazing furnace or a fiery furnace. Well, you know the story. The music begins to play. And because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have convictions as Hebrews about the one true God, they refuse to bow down and worship the idol. So they're brought in front of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they have a, an exchange that's really powerful. You ought to go back and read Daniel chapter 3 and just remind yourself of that. But ultimately, eventually, they're thrown into that fiery furnace. And... Uh, 
the amazing thing that happens is they're not burned up. They're, they don't die. In fact, the story tells us that as King Nebuchadnezzar is seated there looking into the fire, he says, what's going on? We threw three men in the fire, but now I see four and one of them looks like a son of the gods. And so he calls them to come out of the fire and they do and not a hair on their head is, uh, is uh, touched. Not uh, Their clothes aren't scorched or anything. They have no visible uh, displays of the fire or anything at all. And so uh, in the end, God protected them. And so we talk about that story. And then after it's over, I turn to my kids, to Andrew and Tricia, who remember again are 10 and almost seven years old. And I ask them this question, what's an idol? I guarantee you that both of them would respond by saying something like this. An idol is anything that we love more than God. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, these, these guys, they're preacher's kids. They've grown up going to church their entire lives. They know the drill. They've been in Sunday school. They've got these answers down pat. But if I'm doing my job as their father and if I'm doing my job as their pastor, I'm not just going to accept their answer and move on because while technically their answer is correct, it needs to be expanded for their own spiritual protection. And so here's what I would say in response. I would say something like this. Yes, that's what an idol is. But then I'd follow it up with this question. Is anyone going to come along and ask you to bow down and worship a 90-foot-tall golden statue today? And they would both have to say no. And I would respond by saying, but that doesn't mean that idols don't continue to exist today. And that opens the door to a very open and a very honest conversation about how idols come in all different shapes and sizes and forms today. We could talk about how things like money or success or popularity or sports or other extracurricular activities or hobbies that we pursue in our lives can become idols, and it could be a discussion that goes on and on and on. And after we have a good long talk about that, then I could return to a question, and I could say, so how do you know if something is an idol today? And I think, I really believe, friends, that after giving it a little bit of thought, that at least one of them would speak up and say something like this. You know something is an idol if you think you could never be happy without it. You know something is an idol if you think you could never be happy without it. And I would hear angels singing in the background, because we had this breakthrough and they didn't just go from reciting the Sunday school answer to identifying the reality of idolatry, they went from a Sunday school answer to identifying the very real danger of idolatry. You know something is an idol if you think you could never be happy without it. Let me ask you a very pointed question today. Is there anything in your life apart from your faith in God, apart from your personal relationship with Christ that you think you couldn't be happy without? If so, then that's what I would call a spiritual red flag because that fits our definition for idolatry. Let's be honest. We don't give much thought to idolatry today because we generally think of idolatry in pretty limited terms. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, 
Oftentimes we think of idolatry in Old Testament terms. Uh, we think about how when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, uh, we read these words in verses 2 and 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. Then in verse 4 and the first part of verse 5, he goes on to say, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So when we think of idolatry, we think of idols, literally. We think of images carved in wood or stone or something like that. Or maybe when we think of idolatry in terms of the Old Testament, we think of stories like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You read this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. When Ahab, a man named Ahab, became king of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30 says, He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And one of the worst things he did was he began to worship a Canaanite god called Baal. Now, if you're familiar with this Old Testament story, you know that ultimately what God did was he used the prophet Elijah to uh, force a showdown with this false god Baal at a place called Mount Carmel. And God, working through Elijah, didn't just humiliate the prophets of Baal. Ultimately, he took the lives of the prophets of Baal. He killed them all. You can Google this god Baal on your smartphone or your computer, and you can see all kinds of images, man-made created images for what he looked like. And so maybe, you know, we don't think much about idolatry because we think of it in really limited terms, for example, in terms of the Old Testament. Maybe you're like me, though, and it's not just that. You, you've traveled around the world. You've seen different kinds of idols that people and different religions worship today in different parts of the world. I've been to India, for example, multiple times, and there are statues and idols of Hindu gods everywhere in India. But the problem with thinking about idolatry exclusively in those kinds of terms, in terms of the Old Testament or in terms of what we might call uh, pagan religions today, is that we don't see how idolatry really has the power to impact the heart. If you've got a Bible handy with you, I want you to go ahead and grab it and turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts and find the 19th chapter. I've got my Bible open to Acts chapter 19 today. And while you're finding that passage of Scripture, let me just set the context for what we're going to look at. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 1, we find the Apostle Paul traveling to the city of Ephesus where he begins an incredibly powerful time of ministry. He starts off by preaching in the synagogue for about three months, but the Jews there are described as being obstinate and they refuse to believe anything that he says. And ultimately they begin, this is the way it's recorded in my NIV Bible, they begin to slander the way. Now those two words, the way, there in Acts 19.9 is just a term that was used to describe early Christianity uh, based on Jesus' statement in John 14.6 when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so when it says they began to slander the way, they just began to slander our Christian faith. And so Paul moves out of the synagogue and he goes to a lecture hall and he preaches and teaches there for two years. I'm going to read Acts 19 verses 11 and 12 because they give us an indication of just how powerful Paul's ministry was while he was there in Ephesus. 
God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, if you read on from there and just like you should revisit Daniel chapter 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sometime today. You should go and read all of Acts 19 sometime today. But if you read on from there, you'll see that all of this resulted in some dramatic conversions among the people in Ephesus, some of whom were living in great darkness. Well, how many of you know that it seems like in life, you never have the good without the bad? And that's what happens here. And I'm going to show that to you beginning in Acts chapter 19 and verse 23. Actually, I'm going to read Acts 19 from verse 23 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 41. You follow along with me. Remember, we're talking about learning how idolatry can really impact the heart. About that time, there arose a great disturbance among, or excuse me, about the way. Again, a reference to early uh, Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis to the, oh, me, of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. What's happening here? Well, what's happening is a perfect description of how idolatry affects and impacts the heart. Paul is involved in such an effective time of ministry that the number of conversions taking place along with his preaching and teaching is threatening the worship, the idolatry of the goddess Artemis. 
And so this silversmith, a man named Demetrius, who would have been involved in making silver shrines to Artemis that served as household idols, takes offense and stirs up all of his fellow silversmiths along with other craftsmen in a way that leads to a riot. Now, I'm not going to try to teach this entire passage of Scripture. All I really want to do is show you how this idolatry they were involved in impacted their hearts. When I look at the text, here's what stands out. The first thing is this, idols, which leads to idolatry, gives us our identity. Demetrius created this disturbance in Ephesus, again, because he saw that the ministry of Paul and the message of Paul was threatening everything about who he was. First of all, it was threatening his income. You see that in the latter part of verse 25, he said, men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. Second, uh, it was threatening uh, his trade, you see that in the first part of verse 27, he says there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, and then third, he sees that Paul's message and ministry is threatening everything that made his life worthwhile. You see that in the latter part of verse 27. After he said, and we read this just a moment ago in the first part of the verse, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, he goes on to say, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This is one of the great dangers of idolatry. Our entire identity gets tied up in whatever our idol is in whatever we worship, whatever it is we think we can't be happy without. Last November, we had our annual stewardship series where we talk about money, and it was called God, Money, and Me. We began on the first weekend by looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, and this is where Jesus uh, talks about making sure that we don't store up treasures for ourselves on earth because everything about the earth is temporary and passing away. Instead, we need to make sure we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where everything is eternal. And the passage ends with Jesus saying these words in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And when we got to that verse, I talked to you about the fact that the word money is capitalized, something that a lot of people don't even notice. Why is it capitalized? Well, there's a simple answer. It's capitalized so that we can see money for what it is or what it seeks to be, and that's a rival God. That's why money becomes an idol to so many people. In this world, money becomes a rival God that wants to control our lives. Let me ask you this question. Do you know anyone whose entire identity is tied up in how much money they have or how much money they earn? Does that describe you? Where do you find your identity in this life? If it's in what you do or if it's in what you have, instead of who you are, who you are in Christ, then that's a problem. So what we learn from this passage in Acts 19 uh, is that the first way idolatry impacts the heart is that it gives us our identity. Our identity gets tied up in whatever our idol is, whatever it is we think we can't be happy without in our lives. Here's a second way that idolatry impacts the heart. Idols, the, the object of our idolatry, 
engages our deepest emotions. We look back at our story and we pick it up in Acts 19 and verse 28. And after Artemis had this conversation with his fellow silversmiths and the other craftsmen, this is what we read. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So when their idol, the object, object of their idolatry was threatened, they were furious. Here's a pertinent question. What is it in your life that you would be furious about if it were threatened in any way? You know, when I look at this story, my sense is that the real idol of the Ephesian silversmiths wasn't Artemis as much as it was the money that she generated for them. And the idea that they could lose that money, that they could lose that income, made them furious. What is it that you could lose in your life? What material thing or activity or pursuit could you lose in your life that would make you furious? That would engage that deep emotion? Here's the third way that idolatry impacts the heart. We will do just about anything to protect our idols. It's clear that Demetrius wasn't going to just stand by and watch everything his life was built on vanish. And so what did he do? Well, he gathered up a group of men uh, who were like-minded, that he had something in common with, and through his words, he turned in, them into a band of thugs who just wanted to force, physically force Paul out of town. What is it that you would be obsessive about protecting in your life, and why? That's a question we need to ask. Listen, if all we do is think about idolatry in Old Testament terms, and we think about, you know, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, we think of Bible stories in the Old Testament like Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or we just think about it in terms of pagan religions where people around the world still worship idols or images, then we might be tempted to think that idolatry is not a problem for me. But that might not be the case. And the truth is, we may just have a big blind spot when it comes to the problem of idolatry in our own lives. I'll go back to the definition of idolatry that came from my opening story. You know something is an idol if you think you could never be happy without it. And based on that definition, we all have to ask ourselves the question, do you have any idols in your life? Is modern-day idolatry an issue for you? Well, here's what I want to do as we begin to close this message. I, I just want to share with you three verses of Scripture, three single verses of Scripture that I think relate strongly to the truth that idolatry is something that continues to be a very real threat to our spiritual lives, as well as the truth that we very well might be living with blind spots or a big blind spot in our lives when it comes to the problem of idolatry. You should probably write these verses down. The first one is Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. And you're going to recognize these words even if you don't recognize the reference. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This, of course, was Jesus' answer to the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? These same words are found, actually, in the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, although they're written a little bit different in that reference in my NIV Bible, in my Bible, Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
The bottom line is, the Bible teaches us that our first and our highest love must be for God. When I think about that, I think about the truth that I love many things in my life. I love my wife, Sandy. We've been married for over 38 years. We've been together for known each other probably more than 40 years. E.E. E. Cummins once said, true love stories never have endings, and that's the way I feel about her. I love my children. Actually, I love my children beyond all reason, and it's been that way from the very first time I laid eyes on them. And I can guarantee you that there's nothing that could ever happen in this world or in this life that would ever change that. I love my daughter-in-law and I love my son-in-law. They are both answers to many prayers that were prayed over many years, and I'm so thankful that they are both a part of our family. I love my grandchildren. Someone once said, there are places in your heart that you don't even know exists until you love a grandchild, and I can tell you from experience that that is absolutely true. I love my extended family. I love my friends. I love my church. I've loved every church I've served. I love to preach. I love to play golf. I could go on and on and on. But above all of those things is my love for God. That's the way it's supposed to be. And one of the reasons why is because it's God who brought all of those other loves into my life. Now, you may have a different list of the things that you love than I do, but at the end of the day, if you're a believer like me, if you're a Christian, then the final conclusion's got to be the same, that our love for God is above every other love that we have in our life. The second verse I've got written down here is 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, and actually, I've got it written from the modern English version Bible. In that Bible, it simply says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I want to speak just a minute to all of the parents who still have children in your home, regardless of their age. Honestly, I'm going to take a little bit of liberty with this verse, although I feel like I'm just focusing on one aspect of the context rather than changing the context. One of your greatest responsibilities as a parent is to guard your children from idols. Again, 1 John 5.21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You've got to take a significant role in doing that. One of your most important responsibilities is to guard your children from idols, especially when they're not mature enough to recognize them when they come along. If you're a, a parent, you've got this small, limited window of time to influence your children, to guide your children. Proverbs 22, 6 says it like this, train up a child in the way he should go. You've got this small and limited window of time to train up your children in the way they should go. And once that time is gone, you'll never, ever get it back again. And so my word to you today is don't lose sight of what's most important in their lives and what's most important for their lives. Pay attention to the influences in their lives. Pay attention to the affections of their hearts. And remember that no matter how mature they are, no matter how good they are, no matter how smart they are, at the end of the day, they're still just children. They're still just kids. And even mature kids, smart kids, and good kids can make mistakes. 
So you need to make sure that their spiritual lives is one of your highest priorities. Don't let yourself get caught up in the pattern of the world. Remember those words that Paul wrote in Romans 12 too when he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. There are more important things for your children than the things that the world has to offer that will often captivate their time and their attention. And listen to me. I'm saying this from the perspective of a pastor who has seen so many kids, so many good kids, who once had hearts that burned for spiritual things, now have hearts that have grown cold to spiritual things because they live their lives following a schedule that allowed no time for spiritual things. And mom and dad, this is your responsibility. And I hope you can hear my heart on this. I'm not speaking from any agenda other than a genuine spiritual concern for your family and for your kids. The third verse I've got written down here is Psalm 90 and verse 12. The psalmist writes and says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist is simply saying, make sure that you evaluate the use of your time, the use of your life, in light of the brevity of life. And so don't waste your time pursuing the wrong kinds of things. I'm going to go back to a question I asked you a little bit earlier. Is there something in your life, anything in your life, apart from your faith in God and apart from your faith in Christ, that you think you couldn't be happy without? I mean, if you really ask that question from an honest heart and come up with an answer, then that's something that can threaten your spiritual life and threaten you becoming the person that God wants you to become, that God needs you to become. We might think that idolatry is not a problem for us in this modern world that we live in. But nobody's going to come along tomorrow and ask us to bow down and worship a 90-foot statue of gold. That doesn't mean that idols don't still exist in the world today. And we got to make sure that we don't have a blind spot about any of those idols existing in our hearts, our lives, and our families. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for a time today to open up our Bibles and to talk about the reality of idolatry. And the truth is, probably all of us, at least on some level, have a blind spot about things in our lives that we often place ahead of our commitment and our pursuit of you, our commitment to you and our pursuit of you. And help us to be honest about that. Help us to recognize those things and then do whatever we need to do to reset our priorities. Because at the end of the day, we need to make sure that our love for you, our commitment to you, our commitment to following you, and becoming who you want us to be, 
is the highest priority in our lives. And when that's the highest priority in our lives, then every other part of our life will be blessed. When that's the highest priority of my life, then that's when I'm going to be the best husband I can be. When that's the priority of my life, that's when I'm going to be the best father and grandfather that I can be, the best friend I can be, the best pastor I can be, the best steward I can be, and on and on and on. And so help us to take a good, long, honest look at our lives and make sure that we don't have a blind spot about the reality of idolatry. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.